this session with Dr. Saliha Baba, we discuss relational responsiveness, how we make meaning together, and the influence of attending to the recursivity of our lives. Welcome to the AFTA Podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Saliha Bhava. Dr. Saliha Bhava is Associate Professor of Couple and Family Therapy at Mercy College in New York and Advisory Board Member and Associate of the Taos Institute. She will receive the 2023 AFTA Distinguished Contribution to Family Therapy Award. She co-founded the International Network of Collaborative Dialogic Practices and the International Journal of Collaborative Dialogic Practices. She is the co-author of The Relational Workplace and The Relational Book for Parenting, and the co-editor of the upcoming Rutledge International Handbook of Postmodern Therapies. She trains on a wide range of topics, including anti-dominance, dialogue as socially just, hyperlinked in identities, and conversations for intersectional lives, and play and creativity in couples therapy. She is a relationship consultant to organizations and therapists, and a practicing couples therapist in New York City. Saliha, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'd like to ask, what's been drawing your attention in your work these days? Thank you, Naveed. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. What's drawing my attention nowadays so much? Um, I just finished writing the book, The Relational Workplace. So whenever you finish writing a book, I don't know if it happens to all authors or not, your mind wanders in all the directions that you didn't go. Uh, and the yes. directions that you did go, how have you done justice to it, mm. right? Have, have you gotten the things that mattered to you out in the way that you wanted it out by the time it gets edited and so on and so forth? So that's a big part. Like when I finished writing a book, I um, I find myself I'm on a new journey of further, kind of like when you finish your dissertation, you know everything you don't know. Right. And you want to learn more. Yeah. And so I, I'm I'm really curious nowadays about how I mean in this world that's so divisive, how do we connect what we do every day with each other? How that attention to it can help change the larger social systemic structural world that has fed into the divisiveness. Hmm. Right. And so this connection between the two, the macro and the micro, is not separate, but interconnected. I mean, the book is about that in some ways, because the book is about relational intelligence, using relational practice, what we at after not take for granted, but know like in our bones, what we live every day in our practices with our students, with, with, with clients, uh, hopefully in our lives. How do we bring it out into the world of workplace as a way to be responsive to the call for diversity, inclusion, equity work, right? So that that's really what's preoccupying me, keeping me occupied. Um, and the other is also, how do we take these relational ideas and practices and make it more everyday, not just in the workplace, 
But I think there's so much in these ideas that becomes second nature for us and we bring it into therapy, but how might we bring it more, more into our popular everyday consciousness? And the third thing that I would say is I, I run a lab, a play lab. It's called the Relational Play Lab. And I'm always thinking of how do people um, run a lab and how do they train their students to become researchers and practitioners and develop an inquiry mindset? And how might we do this for our new faculty, for our emerging faculty, even though I've been what I would say I'm a mid-career member in our after community. But these are conversations that are sometimes not very really obvious. Mm. So this idea of how do we kind of lift the curtain? How do we how do we explore what we don't know and don't know how to ask? Yeah. So a number of things are on my mind from them big picture of what's going on socially to what's going on in our everyday interactions and in our field and in in the classroom therapy space yeah well congratulations on the publication of the book that's a huge achievement Um, and i appreciate the ways that you're talking about how as a curiosity leads to a particular area of interest and you're writing a book and then that spawns a a bazillion more pathways of curiosities and interests. Um, and Saleha, if I can ask, I guess um, I'm drawn a, a bit to this most, uh, these questions you're asking of how do we connect with each other, especially as it relates to the workplace, if I could mm-hmm. ask a little bit about that, because it seems like you have been thinking about this for some time, if I can make that assumption based off of just your bio and what I know about some of your history. Um, some of the work around, like you said, anti-dominance and dialogue is socially just. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess I'm interested, like, how it is, that, or what you've come to, like, know or understand about these ideas as they apply to the workplace. That's kind of a particular context that you've drawn yeah. out to focus on. Yeah, yeah. So to just step back a little bit, I was, um, after I, I, did, I did my Actually, I shouldn't say after I did my PhD. After I did my coursework, I went to Houston Galveston Institute to do my data collection for my PhD. And I stayed there for the next 10, 12 years, right? So I grew up in that organization as a young professional. But what I landed up doing, I I stepped down from being the associate director. And that really positioned me into this organizational life and got me interested as looking at workplaces by the doing of it. So I didn't use this term, but I was doing ODR, organizational development work, uh, in in the way we were creating the culture of the Institute, in the way we were doing our training, and how we were engaging with the community at large. And this was a training context or a community agency? or something? So this was the Houston Galveston Institute where I went to do my training with Harleen Anderson on okay. collaborative dialogic practices. And I was um, there supposedly for a year to do my doctoral internship and then did my postdoc for another year. And next I know I was there for 10 years after that, right? Things like happen. And... Um, So I think in the living of an organization, I got interested in workplaces, what happens. At the same time, I was very much immersed in a community that believed in dialogue, believed in collaboration, but didn't assume that 
we had the answers for it. And I got this lesson very early in, in my lifetime there, where second year of doing uh, setting up an internship and doing kind of like a welcome program for the new interns coming into this workplace. They're coming in to train. This is the institution for collaboration. This is the institute that does dialogue. Within the first month, the, the interns were like, this is not collaboration. Well, they were really like forced. Uh, we were all forced into co a, a conversation, not too much conflict, but tension, I would say, mm. right? And it really got me thinking about what is collaboration and how we can't assume what collaboration is. Collaboration is what we do together. It's not a concept that we implement. It is a way of being in relationship with each other. And that every year I have to start by asking that question, what is collaboration for you? What is dialogue for you? How do we do this thing called internship? So I have, as uh, by then I have my PhD, I have my credentials and all of that, but it's not my role as the director of training that's going to direct it. It's my relationship with my fellow interns who I am training, but they're also training me into constructing that year, that culture of internship, and that institute takes on that life. So even as we introduce them to the institute, to the workplace, they are shaping the workplace as well. Yes, interesting. Right? And so it's that for me was the kernel for all of these years. And now I'm at a at a higher ed institution at Mercy College. And my role is I'm a faculty member and I serve on committees. And sometimes on committees, I have a kind of a title of being a chair or a secretary. But my designated role at workplace is that of a faculty member, which puts me somewhere in the middle. I don't have administrative position. I'm not like a program director or a dean or something. Mm -hmm. And so that brings up this question of what can I do at my workplace mm. to further a dialogue on diversity, on inclusion, on equity, right? And these are not terms that I, I necessarily used way back when I was at Houston Galveston Institute, but these are not unfamiliar terms because it comes back to what I was doing in India before I came to the U.S., working on human rights, working on equity, working on access, but they travel by different names in different contexts. Mm. And so the book comes out of all these years of being in different work contexts, engaging these ideas, and noticing that often we very quickly falter to the policies, right? We've, we move into what I will say structural measures. And a lot of us flounder, struggle with what might be everyday interactional measures, so to speak, which is where that place of connection and belonging happens. And this is our expertise as family therapists, as systemic practitioners. We do this work of everyday interactions constantly. Right. So it's bringing all of those worlds together, if that makes sense. Um, I feel I've gone away from your question. So Throw it back. Take me where you need to go. No, no, no. I'm really drawn into what you're saying. Uh, just to capture a little bit about what you're mm -hmm. saying, correct mm -hmm. me if I'm misrepresenting mm -hmm. anything, that like, as you're kind of, ex as you're finding yourself in a community that has a shared set of community ethics and values around dialogue and collaboration, maybe social justice and some of that stuff, finding yourself in conversations with those community members and incoming like interns and stuff we're saying, 
realizing like, oh, we don't actually have the same language for this thing called collaboration. Perhaps mm-hmm. it was a bit presumed that we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And coming to this understanding through some conversations and dialogue that you had with that community that collaboration isn't this implemented com- concept or intervention. It's a broader dynamic, a relational set of ethics, perhaps, and ways right. of being together that allows this thing called collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I'm also drawn to some of the ways that you were talking about how your history and work in India mm-hmm. and some of the ways that language carries with it different epistemologies, I suppose, mm-hmm. histories. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps collaboration or whatever the, whatever the word they might use in the various dialects and languages of India, um, whatever words they're using for collaboration carries a different history with it. Right. Yeah. Perhaps in other languages. In other languages, and and the words like diversity, equity, workplace, all of them are also windows into worlds. Yes. Right? So I often say this to my students, words are windows into worlds. Yes. And if we can ask and get curious about that language, about that word, we step into literally worldviews. And that's one of the things I want to bring forward into not just what we've written into the book as the relational workplace, but into our everyday discourse and dialogue. Like people are struggling with language right now. And my students struggle with it. Go ahead, you you look like... No, 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 please. So I'm really curious, how do we shift the dialogue, culturally shift the dialogue, that language is not representative. Words are loaded with meaning, but not just dictionary meaning, but the meaning of what comes alive, what Bakhtin talks about as words carry our social discourses, but also comes alive in everyday usage, in the back and forth of our interactions. And how do we bring a cultural awareness to that? Because I think there is such resourcefulness once we understand that words are not fixed with meanings, but we give it life in the way we use, that they shape us, they shape our interactions, they shape our sense of self, they shape our larger culture, that we can then shift the dialogue of how uh, divisiveness is getting done, how we are fighting for what we think is a value that we possess. I wonder if you can share some stories or examples of how you've understood this or negotiated this across languages too because you you asked this question that you were posing of like what can I do in my workplace to encourage Mm -hmm. dialogue Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering like what I imagine in the unique social locations you hold and access to language that you have you've come to understand about what's possible in that question especially as it relates to collaboration so an example that comes to me is is right now uh, back to what I was saying earlier about Mercy College as a faculty member, I felt how do I mean my my agenda was to bring more relational practices into into Mercy College's pedagogy setup. So I've I've been at Mercy for about twelve years or so, and I've done different things as as a faculty member for with the Center for Teaching and Learning. So I approached the Center for Teaching and Learning to develop an inclusive pedagogy project about a couple of years ago and. Before that, we've talked about creativity and play and stuff that that are all part of my scholarship. 
what's fascinating is everybody wants DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Everybody wants to address it because the new buzzword, right? But what is inclusive? What does it mean to do inclusive pedagogy? For that matter, where where is pedagogy? I mean, even the word pedagogy, if you take it, it's actually learning for children. We're not using the adult term for pedagogy. We're using, so, th- so that right there is an example of navigating and negotiating that term, inclusive pedagogy. And what's fascinating is it's informed by another term, which is evidence-based. Who decides what is evidence? Teachers have what we would say in our field, practice-based evidence. Does that count as evidence? Right. Is evidence based uh, in research? Is it the synthesis of what we study as scholarship? Or is it uh, what we might uh, call random controlled experimental design that is evidence? Like, And for our field, I'm using that as an example because we all are either teachers, practitioners, or, or trainers in some form and learners in different ways. These are languages that sometimes don't get unpacked when you're at at the table and the provost is saying, or somebody from a higher office is saying, we need to use evidence-based practices. And sometimes we don't stop, pause to inquire. I'm I'm, I'm doing uh, quotation marks with my hands, but we don't stop and become curious. What do you mean by evidence? Because the assumption in that space is in a larger education that we are all talking about the same word when we say evidence-based. So that's an example of shifting the dialogue, but also looking, it's taking a risk because what do you mean you're asking me that question? Right. Right. So I think that's one example of how I bring these ideas and, and take risks and practice these ideas of meaning making as not taken for granted, but let's rediscover, let's re um, recollect ourselves, reassemble ourselves, and even trouble the word evidence. Yeah. But it's evidence is such a sacred word right now in academia. And I have nothing against it, but I do think we need to revisit it. Yes. Because it is a discourse of a particular kind that is taken as a gold standard when we don't unpack it. Yeah, so if, if I'm understanding correctly, there's something in this practice you're, in the story that you're sharing of not taking for granted shared knowledge, slowing down conversations or dialogue to uh, kind of craft and construct some definitional operational meanings together, like the word evidence or even the mm-hmm. word collaboration, like what that means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that I get stuck on, and I'll I'll just share mm-hmm. from my own world. This isn't sure. actually stuck on what you said, but as I'm transported into my own life. So I teach in a local university, San Diego State, over here, mm-hmm. and one of the, the one of the contexts that I find myself sometimes stuck with or negotiating is, I guess I would say some Persian cultural approaches to education that are fairly hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Or like that's a history of mine that I've been exposed to and in certain ways see as helpful. I think of like a musical context where you kind of have like a master and apprentice and there's mm-hmm. a learning process that's valued in that energy. And then 
kind of what feels like a more contemporary um, American progressive, perhaps interest. I'm being really careful about using the word collaborative because I'm being mindful of our conversation we're having that perhaps I have no idea what the word collaborative means, actually. Um, But where the students and the teacher and instructor are on kind of this equal level trying to determine what's the syllabus, what's the direction Mm -hmm. we're headed, what are we going to do together as a learning that feels more flat in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, power. Mm-hmm. which I also see the value for and kind of fits with another set of ethics that I hold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am kind of failing to ask this question clearly, Saliha. So I wonder if there's a way that you're uh, in some interpretations, like, I guess I wonder like to what effect is there a colonial element imposed onto a historically hierarchical approach? Yeah. And then at what point does that, colonial critique actually stymie some useful forward movement action education that is benefited by a flat relationship. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, I'll take it where it's making sense to me, if it's okay. This is going in so many places. (laughs) Sorry if I'm not even in the same zone. I might be like missing what you're... This is the beauty of conversation, right? And I'm hoping that this is what we can do more of. That it's not such a role-based conversation that somehow I'm here to talk and here to listen, but that we are co-creating something here together. Mm. And that we don't know what we are creating here together. But the beauty of it will come out when we can go back and listen somehow and open up other conversational possibilities. So that's, that's the overall thing that I'm trying to create with these ideas. So back to this, the... If we look at, maybe for lack of a better word, the hierarchical way of teaching, there is the maestro and the student. Yes. You know, in India, we have it to the guru and the um, shiksha. And the idea that knowledge flows in one direction, not bi-directional, et cetera, yes. gets framed as colonial. And I get that, right? Because it's top down. But the minute you frame it as colonial, you've also taken away all the other richnesses that can po- it, it can possibly have meaning of. Right. So how do we do this work of critique by not becoming reductionistic? Yes. Right? I think there is a colonialism there. I'm not going to deny that. But there is also some value there. Right. So how do we have a pluralistic dialogue about anything that doesn't elevate one thing as superior to the other in the moment that it is critiquing something else and trying to find an opening? So as we are trying to talk about collaboration, as we are trying to talk about progressive knowledge, co-construction, do we have to put something else down to lift the other up? For me, that is a system of dominance. We are still in the system of dominance that we have to have hierarchies. One is worse than the other. You can't have something stand by itself because the way we make meaning is in relationships. Yes. And the way we know how to make relationships is to make binaries and then put them as one better than the other by putting one on top of the other. That is a colonial sense of meaning. So if you can't see that in the doing of what we're doing, then we're not really making structural changes. We're just replacing the actors. We're just replacing who's top, who's on the bottom. Yes. 
So I don't know where I've gone with that example that you threw out, but that's what I was hearing you say that, is it all good? Is it all bad? Yeah, I guess it was, um, and I apologize that I wasn't very clear in my question. Oh, please do not. I love this. I love what we're doing together. No, I, I've been, I'm just thinking out loud about something that I haven't been able to make sense of. And maybe this isn't the right forum, but I'm appreciating what you're saying that like, and this is an experience that I've had too, at least in, well, in my world, I work in a domestic violence field in my mm-hmm. practice context, which is a fairly conservative world, you know, saturated by lawyers and law enforcement and stuff like that. And then teaching in a department that espouses very progressive ideas. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting in both those contexts, the w- witnessing of, like you said, reductionist critiques that necessarily raise one element as important, like whether it's um, criminality in one section or colonialism in another one, you've constructed a particular frame, if I'm understanding Mm -hmm. you correctly. Mm -hmm. And in that frame, you are constructing hierarchies of good and bad Mm -hmm. that can create a divisiveness that does an injustice to relational dynamics they can move an institution forward mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. like going too far with what you said well, who's to judge the too forwardness of it right but yeah i think i think there's value in saying that i think we need to talk about that how do we make sense without saying good and bad there's yeah. value judgment and academia has i'm going to use the the the, the business metaphor here academia we don't one of the sacred cows of academia is knowledge construction. Yeah. And we don't talk, don't reflect as much on the processes by which we make knowledge construction, mm. which is critiquing another idea to elevate or make sure there's a gap to make another position happen. Mm. That's one of the things we do. Writing is decontextual, often academic writing is considered dry, right? There's a lot of people like Laurel Richardson who talks about how to write more embodied ways, more more bringing the person of the writer into the text and so on. So there are so many practices in academia that can be, that lend itself to knowledge construction in a way that is decontextualized, that is hierarchical, that's also sometimes um, devoid of the relationality of where ideas, practices, come into being that becomes and gets presented as knowledge. So we don't talk about that I, that idea of knowledge construction. We train people into it, but we don't talk about what is getting, what's the larger social context that's getting made from it. Yeah. So I hear your struggle from that perspective. Um, so I don't think it's taking it too far is what I'm saying. Well, I appreciate your generosity. Well, if I may ask, if it's with your permission, Saliha, like, given that the availability and maybe ease of divisiveness is so, um, I don't know, our society is quite entrenched in some of that now, and maybe our Mm -hmm. language too. uh, How are you kind of thinking about inviting some different ways of people being together and some fairly radical ways of being connected and in dialogue and relationship that kind mm-hmm. of pushes back against some of these huge cultural forces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So this is where I, I feel this is a call to our field, to, to systemic practitioners. We have lots of resources. The concept of relationality, what does that mean? And last the last book I wrote, um, the relational book for parenting, really got me curious on what is relationality? So I did a video series on that, asking mm-hmm. different folks. And everybody has a different idea on what it is. So for me, those ideas of what is relationality is the radicalness that we can offer to device to counter divisiveness. And I don't mean just like love and let's and I think love is very important, don't get me wrong, but it's I'm not just I'm talking about relationality in terms of uh, dignity. I'm talking relationality in terms of interconnectedness. Um, relationality in terms of making the invisible visible, which is what we do as systemic therapists, right? We 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 unpack the patterns that are hidden from us that we have co-created together. Um, the book uh, Relational Workplace is really bringing out relating the activity of being together and making meaning, making language, making sense together. So it is it is trying to highlight how our everyday interactions like this, how we, you and I are talking, we are making conversation, but you're making a podcast. And the podcast becomes part of this larger structural narrative of after conversations. And these largest conversations can shape the organizational conversation. Mm-hmm. So how do we notice the interconnectedness and, and, and the recursive nature, meaning after itself is a context that shapes us to have this conversation that we're having, right? Mm-hmm. So this back and forth, in the book, I, I offer a, a visual called the relational discursive loop. Um, and it is a kind of how to help, because I'm thinking we are in audio world here. Imagine two, it, it's a double infinity loop, two infinity loops sitting side to side. Like, yes. And thinking about on one end of that infinity loop is the somatic, what we feel in our body, what's going on, the sensations, experiences. And on the other end of the infinity loop is the larger structural systemic processes and uh, institutions. And the two inner loops or the inner spaces on one end next to the uh, somatic is our everyday conversations, is our interactions. And often we spend time there. I can see you, you're nodding your head or you're seeing me gesturing. There's a lot of meaning making that's happening. And that gets to this third loop which is the stories and the frames. And the stories and the frames are drawn from both our context, our historical context, our social context, the larger systemic context. So what I'm bringing in, in the relational discursive loop is kind of let's open up the accordion of meaning-making and interactions and see how the smaller everyday interactions are deeply intertwined with the larger social macro processes, that these are not separate processes. They are constantly intertwined and reinforcing each other. But in that same way, they can challenge each other. They can reconstruct each other. As they make each other, they can also remake each other. So that's the the piece that I'm trying to bring forward through the book and the work that I'm doing, that if we can start seeing that process, then we become very agentic in these divisive spaces. It's not just happening to us, 
we are also happening back to it. And how do I want to happen back? Mm. Right? The divisiveness was not created by someone else. We are all party to it. Right. So when I feel like a binary, when I feel like I'm being pulled into two, where I have to take a right or a wrong position, I try to resist it. If it's life-threatening, it's different. But if it's not there yet, I don't have to right away fall into the binary. I can look for a third path. And it's that piece of relating the activity of making together that I, I, I think is radical. Once we start noticing that, we become resourceful. I don't need to know formulas. The formula becomes or comes out of the activity of co-creation, of relating with one another, yes. out of that tension. And that's hard to believe, but we always say, trust the process. But that's what, is, what it means to trust the process. Right. So I hope that that offers something. I know it's a very abstract idea, but it's a very lived experience in my body, you know. Yeah, no, I experienced it too. I mean, um, one of the contexts or metaphors I use to understand that dynamic that you described is with music, how it is that like people create music, it mm -hmm. reflects a broader societal energy as art does. And then that music goes out, shapes that society back and shapes us back, shapes our fashion choices, shapes our communities it starts to construct like dissonance and consonance and then there's communities shaped around that dissonance and consonance yeah. um and i love how you were describing that like without kind of understanding a recursive element of that dynamic it's kind of impossible to really like or not impossible but it, it does a dis injustice to re reduce it and oversimplify it yeah yeah, and I think that that's happening a lot in the social justice spaces and the spaces that we are trying to bring change. Yes. Um, we don't, like even in power analysis and social justice, we do the top-down power analysis right. of how, but we don't say the groups that are oppressed, the groups that are marginalized, how are they pushing back? Right. And in that moment, we fail to see the recursiveness of this. That's not to say there isn't subjugation and oppression. It is that it's only one part of the story. And if you don't locate power also in the, in the ways that resistance happens, in the way that people claim space, then we'll never, ever give them power. We will never see them as power, ha having power, right? Yes. And so in that way, I think the current analysis of, of top-down power analysis is absolutely needed. But if you don't expand it out to the recursiveness, we still maintain the the inequities that we are trying to change yes. so yeah yeah i appreciate that i mean in my own work i mean i uh i utilize narrative therapy as a primary theory mm -hmm. for practice at least mm -hmm. and i just had noticed in the training of it there's a you know beautiful ethic in there about how to be decentered and influential and there's an interest in uh looking at power and its mm -hmm. movements in relationship and I have noticed that there's sometimes, especially like uh, younger, not younger, like just earlier in their career, therapists sometimes are handcuffed by the idea of I'm decentered. I can't be more centered or like the analysis of power, like you said, is one way. And it kind of like positions people as like, what can I do? Which is kind of me going back to that earlier question I asked, which is how that plays out in a um teaching environment right. and to your point even that characterization of it 
constructs a binary and a two-way movement rather than mm-hmm. all the multiple recursive mm-hmm. infinity loops, like you said, in which power is, if we're going to use yeah. power as an example, yeah, yeah. it's flowing through. Yeah. And then I don't think just because I'm a collaborative teacher doesn't mean my class is less hierarchical. I have to work with my students to make it so. Yes. I'm literally doing like a climate um, survey with some one of my classes, which is kind of become really like full of conflict and tension, right? And I'm like, okay, let's let's regroup. Let's yeah. tell me what's going on. And one of the questions I ask is, how am I positioned in the class? I'm asking them to comment on me. What do you think I'm doing well? What do you think I'm not doing so well? What do I need to improve? So it's not in my positioning of myself as a collaborative player. It's in my doing of it where I'm asking them anonymous feedback, reassuring that this is not going to affect the grades, that I'm practicing that idea of being a collaborative teacher. Mm. You know, And it's not easy when they tell you, well, I think you're siding with student X and you, you need to not bring that relationship into this class in this way. I'm like, wow, that's not my experience of me. But okay, I need yeah. to hear it. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate sharing that. It's beautiful. Yeah. Your students are lucky. Well, I will ask them after if they feel <laughs> yeah. like that. So, some of them feel it, but I'm I'm not going to be speaking for them. Yes, of course. Well, um, Sally, I've been really enjoying chatting with you. And as, I've, as we're kind of like winding down here, yeah. um, just wanting to name that I'm appreciating also something that you said around how it is that uh, perhaps, uh, oh, I don't know how you want to slice and dice this, but the ways that American society sometimes or some of the bureaucratic structures that we have, uh, privilege protocols and policies, and people tend to flip back to those in moments of tension rather than like leaning onto more interactional relational processes. And that's something that I was just wanting to name as something I was really appreciating mm-hmm. and I'm noticing of my own too. Um, but as we're wrapping up here, wanting to also just check in and say, like, this is rich, beautiful, and also challenging work you're doing. What in your history or life or world has drawn you to this? Like, why is this stuff important to you? If I if I could just simplify the question like that. I know it's a hard one. I I, I feel like I can't forget one story and I think it's always been with me but not that story but the iterations of it and that's when I was like what I don't know five six years old I my dad was in the military I was visiting him for the summer and I had the like you know how it is we everybody's the best friend for you at that moment uh whoever you're playing with they're your buddy kind of thing and I was going to go play with my best friend and I see my um friend's father take a, a stick to hit her it's a uh, wooden handle of a fan uh-huh. and I come running back to my dad and I said do something you know and it's that thing that we when we live in this world you just have to do something it comes calling every day mm. I can't not do something I think and this is where that relational loop helps me that however small the movement is we are part of making that policy. We are part of making that protocol. And we have to do something for that policy to come back. But it's not enough to, to make the policy and assume it stays. The policy has to still get back into the everyday conversation and get so-called implemented. And that happens in our everyday interaction. So I have to do something about it. And so I feel that it's it's the call of relational responsiveness. Yes. 
you know? Thank you. That's a lovely note to end on. Dr. Saleh Habava, thank you so much for joining us. Do you mind sharing the name of your book again, just for folks who might want to go uh, get it? Sure. Thank you. Um, this has been a rich conversation, Navid. I didn't have a clue where it was going to go. So thank you. I know you and I have been wanting to talk for a long time as well. Um, the book is The Relational Workplace. And for parents, it's The Relational Book for Parenting. Wonderful. And that can be purchased anywhere you could get a book. Yes. Amazon, anywhere. Cool. Well, thank you again. Thank you.